0: We'll hear argument now in number 99 12 The Green Tree Financial Corporation versus Larqueta Randall. Mr. Phillips.
1: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The central flaw in the jurisdictional and the enforceability holdings of the Court of Appeals in this case is the manifest hostility that Court demonstrated towards arbitration. The view reflected in those holdings is, to use the phrase this Court used in similar circumstances, quote, far out of step with this Court's endorsement over the past 15 years of arbitration as an effective and an efficient method of dispute resolution of federal statutory claims.
0: and understand your characterization of the second holding that way, about the possibility that the arbitration might uh, entail costs. But uh, the, the jurisdictional holding, do you, do you think that manifests a hostility to arbitration? I do, Mr. Chief Justice, uh, largely because it's reasonably clear that had the court
1: treated that order as as an interlocutory order, uh, then this matter would have gone immediately to arbitration and the arbitration process would have been allowed to go forward. By treating it as a final judgment, as the court did, it then undertook to review uh, the merits (coughs) of arbitrability.
2: Mr. Phillips, there was a crucial difference here. Uh, The court purported to dismiss all (coughs) the claims. It it didn't just enter a stay order, as would typically be the case. It said everything else is dismissed. (coughs) And I take it that would mean then that the statute of limitations might run before the case ever got back or something like that. And, And isn't there a real difference between the entry of a stay order pending the arbitration versus a dismissal.
1: There is no question, Justice O'Connor, that this case would have and probably should have been dealt with as a stay order. Yeah. I mean, Section 3 of the Federal Arbitration Act quite plainly states that the court shall enter a stay. In this context, I think he did this to clear his docket, although that was not specifically our request. That was his Well,
2: why is decision. that wrong, Mr. Phillips? If... What the district judge says is, gee, there's nothing before me. I think every single issue in this case belongs in the arbitral forum, so I'm going to dismiss. And I look at Section 3, what I see that as telling me is don't move forward. It's not stay versus dismissal, but it's stay versus letting the case continue. Why should a, a district judge who says, there's nothing to come back to me, this is not a case where some issues are to be referred to, other, to the arbitral forum, and then there are other issues that I'll decide after the arbitration. Why isn't it perfectly proper for a district judge to say, there's nothing here for me to, to decide, everything is for the arbitrator?
1: Well, I think at, at the end of the day, this is still an embedded proceeding. And even though he ultimately dismisses everything, it is certainly available to come back to him at the end of the arbitration and have these issues reviewed. And it would certainly be much easier as a matter of judicial... issues?
2: In this case, as I understand it, I understand the formal distinction. This is the plaintiff-consumer suing rather than than an action to uh, order arbitration. But it seems to me even... Even if you're right that the district judge should have stayed, what in fact happened was the district judge dismissed total, case gone. And that seems to me as final a judgment as they could be. You could argue he shouldn't have done that. Right, <laughs> just like erroneously entering summary judgment. We don't say it isn't the final judgment. Jud- judge says, I would summary judgment to the defendant. Plaintiff says, gee, judges shouldn't have done that. But it doesn't make the judgment any less final that the judge maybe should have done something other than dismiss.
1: Well, if you take it to the flip side, though, Justice Ginsburg, what happens in a situation where you deny summary judgment but style it as a as formally a final judgment, even though it in fact isn't doesn't a matter final how judgment?
2: you style it, you've got something before you, you've held on to something. It doesn't matter what label you pin to it. If a district judge disassociates itself from the case, that's the classic distinction. That's the classic definition of and a final I, judgment. This district judge says, out, this case isn't here anymore, gone, as distinguished from, I'm entering an interlocutory order. It's not what
1: Clearly, that's not what the judge did here. And the question is, <laughs> what should an appellate court do when it's presented with this particular problem? And my answer to you is to recognize that the dismissal in this context was an inappropriate way to proceed, treat it as a stay, and therefore conclude that it was not appropriate to go beyond that and entertain the question of arbitrability, because to do that is to create a new class of problems under Section 16 that otherwise wouldn't exist. We know that if it's a true independent action and you and you order something to arbitration, then there's an appeal but of that. Say, Treat but that's the as, only case like you that.
2: You say treated as, we're already saying, this district judge says dismiss. Treated as I means district judge, you're wrong, you should not have dismissed. We have to re- review and reverse at least that much to say you should not have dismissed the case You should have stated. it. So I could see, if you're right about that, that the proper result here is always stay, never dismiss. Then the Court of appeal says, this judge was wrong in dismissing. We certainly have to review that. That's as final as it could be. And on the merits of that decision to dismiss, just as we would do with the summary judgment, we say, district judge, you're wrong, you had no authority to dismiss, You should have stayed. I don't know that courts of appeals treat dismissals that are wrong as if the judge had not dismissed.
1: Well, the the, the ultimate question, it seems to me, Justice Ginsburg, is going to be whether you're going to treat form or substance in this context as the most important. Because it's pretty clear to me that while the judge did, in fact, formally dismiss the action, what was both required under Section 3 of the Federal Arbitration Act and what, what we asked for him to do was to stay this, This is the plaintiff's choice of forum. There's no reason the case couldn't have stayed there. We can respond directly to the Chief Justices and Justice O'Connor's concerns about judicial administration by retaining the case under those circumstances. And we can fulfill the overall purposes of the Federal Arbitration Act appellate review standards by insisting that matters... When all doubts are, you know, when you can resolve all doubts in favor of making sure they go to arbitration, rather than go through what we are today, which is having adjudicated this issue at three different levels of the federal court system over five years, tens of thousands of dollars, and we're no closer today to resolving the merits of this dispute over the $15 charge and whether that's a finance charge or not. Sure, but if you lose lose this case,
3: it won't take another five years in another case because everybody will know pretty much where we stand. Well, there's no question. I mean, the, the, the problem, the long litigation here is that, that you've got an unresolved question.
1: There's No question about that, Justice Souter. What we you, need is an
3: answer. That's you said the, 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 we, we, we should see this as a choice of form versus substance. Haven't we got a form versus substance problem, in effect, whichever way we go? I understand your form-substance argument here. Uh, but if we follow the, the embedded independent distinction, we got a form substance problem, too. Uh, and it seems to me that if we, if we follow the embedded independent distinction, uh, we, we are, in effect, going to be leaving it up to a matter of pleading, in a great many instances, uh, as to what the appealability may be. And, and let me just throw out the suggestion that we might be better off to, to, to let district judges, in effect... Uh, make the form substance distinction uh, and uh, and decide the appealability question, uh, then leave it to parties who are pleading to make that distinction for us. I
1: I think where we ought to to look for for the appropriate legal standard is the statutory scheme. And I think Congress clearly incorporated embedded versus independent into the, into the comp- subcomponents of Section 16. It clearly recognized there are independent proceedings and there are embedded proceedings, and it has specific rules about how appeals ought to be followed in that course. So to be sure, there may be some potential for manipulation by the parties, but I don't know of much evidence to reflect that reflects that that's any kind of a problem. And Congress essentially bought into that distinction in 1988 when it adopted the statute in the form that it did. Well, it did,
3: it did. It did set forth specific rules, but it certainly didn't adopt the the embedded non-embedded uh, criterion as a as a test for anything else. And the word it used for for uh, uh, Appealability was uh, w- was a classic word that has nothing to do with embedded versus non-embedded. I mean, if if they if that's what they meant by final, you know, final decision, they should have uh, they should have said something else. It's a very strange word to use to convey embedded versus uh, non-embedded.
1: I, don't, I it's, To be sure, Congress could have been clear here, and I think what. Uh what the court said in Cortez Bird last term applies equally here, that, that uh, enlightenment is not going to come from parsing the language of this particular statute. At the end of the day, what we know is that the final decision language in Section 16A3 covers the classic situation involving an independent proceeding, whether it should be extended beyond that to a new class of claims that will interfere with the implementation of the goals of arbitration is the issue before this court. I find it difficult to get passionate about this because I, I believe Justice Souter is right. At the end of the day, what really matters is that we have a rule. Once we have a rule, the rest of us presumably what will be able mean? to line up behind that rule.
4: What did the, the only — I'm totally puzzled, frankly, by this statute. And. Uh, I did notice that the only people who seemed to understand it, because I guess they wrote it, was the Judicial Conference, and they put in the legislative history that uh, it would allow appeals from final judgments, including a final judgment in an action to compel arbitration, or a final action dismissing an action in deference to arbitration. So I didn't see that last, what could that last statement mean other than this case? I
1: think that last statement could be read directly to apply to this case. Uh, whether or not it, it was meant, and, and whether Congress adopted that, I but, have well, no idea. But, I mean,
4: it's not, it's not a uh, an, an obvious thing that you would
1: want to allow an appeal in this kind of case. Exactly. It's not obvious that you wouldn't. Oh, I think so, it's quite obvious uh, you would not want an not? appeal in this. No, Justice Barrett, that's wrong. It, it is clear to me that you would not want to go through the delay and forestalling allowing these matters to go to arbitration. That's what the parties voluntarily uh, agreed to. But
4: you to. do the other way. You see, there's Situation A, where a plaintiff... a plaintiff wants arbitration and the defendant doesn't.
1: An independent action you're talking about. That's
4: right. Well, the the plaintiff would love to go to arbitration, defendant doesn't. Right. So what is he supposed to do? The defendant won't show up in the room, won't set it up. He goes to court and asks the judge, judge, send him to arbitration. And the judge does or he doesn't. Either way, he gets an appeal. That's correct. Either way. Now, the converse case, the plaintiff, does not want arbitration, but the defendant does. Right. The plaintiff runs into court and brings his case. The defendant says, "Judge, send me to arbitration." If the judge doesn't send him to arbitration, there's an immediate appeal. And if he does send him to arbitration, on your view, he's out for lunch, stuck. Right. Because on their view, it's 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 at right. least consistent. You know, both ways well, to get an appeal under both situations.
1: It's not consistent in the sense that if you look at the way 16A and 16B are set up, they really are designed basically to say if you have an ultimate order that says arbitrate, you don't want to go to appeal. And if but you don't, you can then, do it where it's where the defense. There is a single exception. That's well, true, that's Justice Breyer. I can see that. And all I'm saying is, the question is, do you want to drag in another exception under these circumstances, where it's a perfectly sensible to say what should have been entered in here in this context was a stay that's not appealable, and in the future go on forward well, the cases.
2: Well, we look at the language of the statute dealing with the final decision. <laughs> we look at the fact that it was a dismissal. So we say, okay, there's jurisdiction. Now, are you going to talk about question two?
1: I'd love to talk about question two. Thank you, Justice O'Connor. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, if the court finds that there is jurisdiction, the hostility that I mentioned at the outset of my argument applies with uh, particular force with respect to the presumption that the Court of Appeals employs. citing I question?
5: On, to be sure to, I get it in before the hour goes by. On the question two, do you think there are, I, let's assume you're dead right, that the arbitration clause does not have to specify the costs in detail and so forth. But are there cases, and I'm wondering in, in the particular this one, in which an arbitration clause could be so one, one-sided that it's not enforceable? This clause, as I read it, preserves the company's right to, to judicial remedies. and says the arbitration clause shall not interfere with their right to uh, use the judicial process to secure relief, but it does interfere with the other side's uh, right. Now, I don't know whether that's sufficiently one-sided to raise a question or not, but are there clauses that are, are so one-sided that it might not be enforceable?
1: Uh, there may well be. Uh, my, my, let me answer the first part, which is that, you know, is that is the particular imbalance in this clause sufficient to render this unenforceable? I, I, don't, I don't understand the other side to have argued that. If they did argue it below, they, clearly that was rejected because the district court analyzed and dealt with all of the unconscionability issues. So, I don't think that issue is on the table. With respect, I mean, is it possible to have an arbitration clause that says in order to get entry into arbitration, you you know, the the plaintiff would have to uh, file a million dollars? I think, obviously, a a clause like that would be unenforceable under those circumstances because it would interfere with the ultimate enforcement of the statutory right. And that is one of the conditions of allowing arbitration of general statutory claims. And I I don't have any problem with that. The problem is that if you have... A, a clause like the one we have in this case which is silent on these issues the clear presumption then must be that you would favor arbitration you would not assume
0: all of the costs are going to be extreme or You're, you're or saying in the fact that the burden is on the person challenging the uh, fairness of the clause to show some unfairness and that, uh, and that the, what, the 11th Circuit here just without any showing on the part of the, uh, that party simply said because it might
1: that is exactly right, Mr. Chief Justice. The 11th Circuit said we will presume all of the potential costs, large filing fees, pay for the costs of the arbitrator, and pay for everything else without any showing being made uh, by the plaintiff under the circumstances of this case, and therefore we're going to say that there is an inherent conflict. My suggest to you is that the language inherent conflict doesn't remotely entertain that kind of an but analysis. Is, is the relief you're asking for on that
5: ground that we send it back and give the plaintiff the opportunity to make that showing?
1: No, the plaintiff had the opportunity to make that showing. She had a full and fair opportunity to engage in all of the discoveries she wanted to. She chose on a motion to reconsider to throw some materials from the American Arbitration Association over the transom to try to make a, 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 some kind of a showing. The answer is she should go to arbitration ascertain whether the arbitrator whether the fees for arbitration would be waived what the cost of the arbitrator will be and then if it turns out at the end of the day that either those costs are unconscionable as a matter of state law Phillips, from what you just said i take it you disagree with the dc circuit the
2: dc circuit said plaintiffs employees and i take it consumers would fall in that same boat they, they are not go to an arbitration if they're going to face the possibility which they never face in court. In court, they don't have to pay the judge. Arbitrators sometimes charge a lot of money per hour of their time. So unless the contract says, or unless the court reads into the contract, that the seller, in this case, or the finance company, the employer in that case, pays at least for the judge, then this would be uh, an unconscionable arrangement. You can't require the consumer, the employee, to pay the judge, and that has to be
1: clear. I think that the decision of the court in Cole is completely premature for this court to entertain at this point in time because we don't know. What kinds of costs we are talking about. In the, in the record before the D.C. Circuit in Cole, they had some evidence about what they thought the costs would be given the nature of those claims. Here, we have no evidence like that. Is it possible in a particular case that the court uh, could de- declare something unenforceable because the costs are too great? I, I, I well, say, yes,
0: I think you could, but Mr. Phillips, uh, su- supposing that, unlike the case here, the person objecting to arbitration had made a significant showing in the in the district court not going to arbitration but said, look here are some figures from past arbitrations we think this is going to be just like this one. the party wanted to go to go to arbitration doesn't contradict that the district court says yes these kind of costs are going to be incurred in the arbitration and therefore it's unconscionable. Uh, I I don't see why that party should have to go to arbitration if they can make a a persuasive showing to the court. I
1: I don't disagree with that, Mr. Chief Justice. I I think that you have either of two ways to try to prove up your case, either through discovery, which you had a full and fair opportunity to do and didn't present any evidence with, with respect to that, or assuming that there's going to be doubts. And I think all doubts, again, ought to, be, ought to be resolved in favor of pushing toward arbitration in order to ascertain this. Remember, if you read the American Arbitration Association's amicus brief, it says that they consistently waive their filing fees. They often reduce arbitrators' fees. And we know, and it's the reason why I think it makes much more sense for the court to entertain these issues after an arbitration rather than before an arbitration, is that we, we may find out at the end of the day if the plaintiff prevails that all of those costs go back to her. And so she's really out of pocket, nothing except for the well,
0: marginal but, cost during the during the Supposing the proceeding. arbitration, say, goes on for a week and the arbitrator's time is consumed and the plaintiffs and the defendants, and then it turns out that a court is going to find the arrangements were unconscionable, that the plaintiff was required to put up thousands of dollars that the party objected. And so you basically spun your wheels in the arbitration proceedings.
1: Well, hopefully that wouldn't happen, obviously, and you wouldn't expect it to happen very often. But, again, I don't disagree with you, Mr. Chief Justice. If what you're saying is should the plaintiff have an opportunity to prove unconscionability at the outset of the process, I don't have any problem with that, assuming she does more than what she did here, which was to say I'm not going to arbitration, I'm not going to do anything, I'm simply going to put in a study from the AAA, which may or may not apply to the circumstances of this case. I'm not even going to ask Green Tree, whether or not they're willing to, to pay for the fees in the, in the circumstances, all of what the D.C. Circuit uh, required in, in the coal case. Well, she had other
2: reasons too, and, and one the 11th Circuit didn't deal with because it didn't have to, and that is she said, I don't have to go to arbitration because under the Truth in Lending Act, I have a right to make this a class action, and I'm not going to get the class action. The 11th Circuit, as I understand it, said we're not going to address that issue because we already decided she has to have security that she's not going to have to pay for the arbitrator under any circumstances.
1: They they make that argument, and they ask the court in this case to affirm on that alternative ground, and and our position here is that there is no distinction between this case and Gilmer with respect to the treatment of class action. There is no greater right to a class action. But but we,
2: we can't address that as a matter of first view. I mean, the matter? I'm sorry, what? first view, oh, first. the, the uh, 11th Circuit didn't address it at all. It said, that's a question we leave open. We don't have to get to it on our theory of the case. Our theory of the case is that the, that the uh, party seeking arbitration has to pay the arbitrator, period. Right. So we. So at least I feel that, the class, that question, whether there could be arbitration at all, because of the class action provision of the Truth in Lending Act, we, we can't address that in this proceeding because it hasn't been aired below.
1: Well, Justice Ginsburg, you know as well as I do that it's largely a matter of the Court's discretion what alternative grounds which are asserted by a party in litigation to defend a judgment the Court will entertain. Uh, they have raised the class action issue. We have responded to the class action issue. The uh, Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit in a recent decision in Johnson, which we filed a supplemental brief on, has exhaustively analyzed the class action issue. And the bottom line is there is nothing in TILA that is any more uh, pro-class action than there was in the Age Discrimination and Employment Act, which this court held in Gilmer did not prevent enforceability of the arbitration clause in that context. And indeed, TILA... Has provisions that clearly envision providing significant opportunities for plaintiffs to recover in these kinds of cases. There are statutory damages provisions that give significant monies even without showing of injury, and but there you're are attorney's fees. Enough reasonable in here first
2: to deal with the class action issue. But you mentioned Gilmore more than once, and one of the things about Gilmore that struck me is that the securities industry said, unlike. What you're saying, you say, wait and see. Let's see what the arbitrator does. We're not going to tell you one way or the other. The Securities industry said, we pay for the judge. And so that was out of the case. When Gilmer came to this court, it was presented with a situation where the employee was not going to have to pay the cost of the arbitrator because the party seeking arbitration, the securities industry, said, court, don't worry about that. We pay the arbitrator.
1: But the problem with the situation is that you don't presume in the face of silence that there's going to be a problem with going to arbitration. This Court has said consistently for 15 years in interpreting the relationship between the Federal Arbitration Act and Federal statutes that we presume they should go to arbitration. And if there are, if there are gaps, we, ex- we assume that the arbitrator will provide for them. And we know, as this case comes to the court at this point, based on both what was in the record below and what the amici briefs have shown, is that this does not need to be an expensive enterprise. It may not cost her anything with respect to either filing fees or arbitrator's fees.
2: In, in taking this position, you have to be saying the D.C. Circuit not only was premature, but it was just wrong. No. That because I, as I read the D.C. Circuit, they said to make this contract fair and enforceable, it must be not the arbitrator's decision, it must be as a matter of law that the party seeking arbitration pays for the arbitrator, as a matter of law, not for the individual arbitrator to decide in each arbitration.
1: But I, I am troubled, Justice Ginsburg, by the idea that you would adopt a rule, judicially, that as a matter of law, one party must always front the costs regardless of the circumstances of the particular case. And I agree with you. To that extent, I think the D.C. Circuit's opinion is overbroad. I don't know whether it would necessarily be applied as broadly as the language seems to suggest, but what I do know is that the problems inherent in that kind of a rule, which has not been tested particularly, are such that it's completely premature for this Court to go down that path. Where this Court ought to focus is what was before the district judge when that court decided to send it to arbitration? And what was before that judge at that time was silence, which you construe favorably to arbitration and therefore send the matter to arbitration with no further judicial review. Did, did, that did your
5: client make its position on this issue known to the district court, What the cost, how the costs would be allocated and so forth? Did they just say, we'll fight it out when we get to the arbitrator?
1: We said we, we we were never asked specifically our views with respect to this. Didn't volunteer on the court. Well, the, the the issue came up in a motion to reconsider. Uh, Justice Stevens, that was the first time they suggested that these costs were excessive. They did raise the class action earlier in the process, but they didn't raise the question of costs specifically. And frankly, even in the 11th Circuit, the cost question was more of a, of a second thought than it was a primary portion or focus of the attention of the court. If you're asking me, would we pay those costs in most cases, I can tell you that I know the Green Treat does pay those costs in a lot of instances. But th- that's the whole point. The plaintiff has the obligation if, at least to they, ask that question. They pay the cost even if they didn't lose? Even if we didn't lose. We front the cost at a minimum, and oftentimes we can't get those costs back. Uh, if there are no question, further questions, I reserve the balance of my time. Very well,
0: Mr. Phillips. Mr. Sellers, we'll hear from you.
6: Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. <clears throat> I am happy to address the first issue briefly uh, and then turn to the second issue, second, second question. Very importantly, the Federal Arbitration Act did not divest the district courts of discretion to dismiss cases, as the district judge did here, as opposed to staying the case. Therefore, the district court had that discretion, exercised the discretion, and as Justice Ginsburg observed, I think once the decision was made to dismiss with prejudice, there was nothing else left for the court to do, and that satisfied the classic standard of finality that made it subject to immediate appellate review.
2: But, Mr. Sellers, if you took the position that I thought Mr. Phillips, he'll straighten us out on it, uh, was embracing at this argument, although not in his brief, that that, uh, Alabama, uh, the the Amici, the Housing Institute, took, they said, yeah, you can say uh, this was a dismissal of the final judgment, but the Eleventh Circuit should say, District Judge, you're wrong, because you don't have any authority to dismiss you. You must stay because... Section 3 says must
6: stay. Uh, actually, uh, Justice Ginsburg, I don't think that's a, a fair reading of the Federal Arbitration Act. Section 3 says you must stay, but it's not, there's nothing inconsistent about Section 3, as the majority of the circuit courts have recognized, and an ultimate dismissal. Section 3 was designed to ensure that there would be no further pursuit of the merits of the action, that that would be the end of the litigation of the action in that court until the arbitration concluded, there's nothing improper, however, about uh, a dismissal following that. And by the way, if I might just add, GreenTree did ask to dismiss this case. They the alternate, requested alternately. The alternately, a- that's a- correct. And the district court, if nothing else, in responding to GreenTree's request for relief, was properly uh, acted properly in re- granting that request. But even if GreenTree had not requested the uh, dismissal, there's nothing impermissible about a dismissal. Again, I must add, I don't think that the Federal Arbitration Act in any respect divested the district courts of a fundamental aspect of the discretion. Well, even the if, discretion. if there is
0: something improper about a dismissal, it's nonetheless a dismissal. That's correct, it, Your it, Honor. I, I don't think we're in the habit of looking into whether the dismissal was correct or not and deciding whether something was appealable.
6: That's correct. And the 11th Circuit permit was legitimately entitled to rely on the dismissal as a basis for appeal. And I s- do f- s- suppose that...
4: Uh, you, this is what's bothering me a lot. Uh, you have a, a plaintiff bringing a claim. Count one, nothing to do with arbitration. Count two, nothing to do with arbitration. Three, nothing to do with it. Count four, arbitration is at issue. Mm-hmm. The judge, instead of staying it, dismisses it.
6: Appeal? That, that, that I think, would be it would be reversible error, Your Honor, because I think it's clear that that would not be an interlocutory, that would be an interlocutory so order. So you'd
4: have to, the other side would have to cross-appeal. They would say... Uh, that what they would say is this should have been stayed and not dismissed. That's correct. Now what's bothering me about accepting your position, which is very logical and maybe absolutely the right one, but we're going to create now a whole spin-off web of law. And the web of law is going to be, uh, because the first thing that's going to happen every time, you say not every time, but what will happen is the judge, the plaintiff brings a case, judge dismisses it, aha, says the plaintiff, now I can appeal. And there will be a cross-appeal, and the claim will be that, in fact, this is a case where there should have been a stay and not a dismissal. But pretty soon, rules of law will develop as to just when it's the one and when it's the other, and all that means delay, 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 the very opposite of what the Arbitration Act is designed to do.
6: Justice Breyer, I think the rules can be articulated fairly clearly that will avoid the multiplicity of appeals that concern you. If there is a, in, in the hypothetical you gave where the dis, where the, uh, referral to arbitration did not refer all claims that were pending before mm-hmm. the court, I think it would be reversible error to uh, dismiss the case, or if it was dismissed, it would be treated as an interlocutory, and the Court of Appeals could legitimately direct the court to reinstate the case. And, and you end. don't think you
4: as a lawyer will be capable, even in my imaginary case, of arguing that Although the judge thought it had nothing to do with it, or it really did, or the judge thought it did, but it really didn't, etc. cetera. I,
6: I, I don't think so, Your Honor. Uh, I, I think that the, the, the law is pretty clear, and the choices that Congress made in enacting Section 1683 are pretty, pretty clear. Uh, and that kind of scenario would not ordinarily give rise to an appealable order. And I think, as uh, Justice Souter observed, once the rules are set out here, I think we will all be able to follow them. Right now, there's some confusion.
3: I don't understand what you mean by, by saying
6: if it's dismissed, it would be treated as interlocutory. I, I'm sorry. What I meant was it would be reversible error. Uh.
2: And, the, and the, the court of appeals would then instruct the district judges. When there's something left over, of course, you don't enter a final dismissal. That's correct. And that would be. And that would be. That would be end, the end of it. The, so the, the court of appeals. The take it a final judgment and then say, if there are issues left over, you must stay, not dismiss. If there are no issues left over, then it was perfectly proper to dismiss.
6: Right. If there are no issues left over, the court may have some discretion, but it certainly is permissible to dismiss, as the district court did here. And I would ordinarily think most district courts would dismiss under those circumstances because there would be nothing left for the district court to do.
2: What what is your take on the Mm -hmm. argument that was made in that um, amicus brief? That under sections at
6: 3? 16A3, Your Honor.
2: Yeah, 16A3, uh, the words say must stay. It doesn't. Oh, I'm stay. sorry,
6: section 3. Yeah,
2: section, S- uh, section 3.
6: Section three, 3, forgive me. Yeah. it, it the, the term must stay, we read to mean that it may not permit, it is non discretionary, but the key is what it's non discretionary as to. It may not, <clears throat> District Court must stay any litigation of the merits of the underlying claims. that does not speak to the question of whether the district court has discretion if it refers the entirety of the claims to arbitration to ultimately dismiss.
2: Okay. I didn't want to detain you on that. I just wanted to make sure that you recognize Certainly.
6: Thank you. Stay means nothing but not go forward with. Correct. Correct. And I think that's consistent with the way Congress would have viewed it in 1925 when it was originally put in place. May I turn to the second issue that I understand is also of uh, central concern to the court. I think that uh, uh, Mr. Phillips, in using a hypothetical or responding to a hypothetical the court, illustrates the problem with costs and the reason why the circuit court was correct in holding the agreement unenforceable because of the risk of the imposition of large costs. The example given was suppose the plaintiff was expected to put up a million dollars in costs. Or, if we can be a little more realistic, suppose the cost of arbitration were $5,000. Just the initial arbitration-specific cost, the cost of filing, the cost of the arbitrator, because he or she is setting aside a day or two to come out. They want a check in advance, which often happens. Suppose that they, you have to rent a room. Suppose there's a stenographer. And they want all that payment up front.
0: Well, but you, you're, you're necessarily requiring required to say suppose, Mr. South, because your client, made no showing below. Well, uh, it it seems to me that unless we're to say that contrary to our other statements about arbitration agreements, that an arbitration agreement is is suspect, and unless the party can come in and defend its uh, reasonableness, why didn't your client make any showing? Well, Mr. Chief Justice, in fact, she tried, and she was
6: unsuccessful, but not through any fault of her own. I might begin by noting that she, that Ms. Randolph did request and did mention costs well before this time of
0: reconsideration,
6: as was suggested. Well, but suggest- the, the
0: Court of Appeals doesn't rely on any showing. The Court of Appeals just speculated. Well, the Court of Appeals is, is, is relying on the showing
6: that Ms. Randolph made of the average costs from a AAA survey because, notwithstanding her request for discovery, and she filed a motion for discovery, I might add, which is found. Um, it's stock at number 11. Uh, this is discovery going to the costs of the arbitration. It was discovery with respect to arbitration procedures. It was not. It was, it was procedures which I think is fairly could be fairly conclu- could construed to include costs. Um, that motion, uh, pursuant to that motion, she eventually took a deposition pursuant to Rule 30b-6. That was taken in December of 1996. It is not in the record. And in that deposition, their testimony was elicited about whether GreenTree was prepared to, to identify. This question specifically was was posed
0: as to the cost of arbitration. Well, now, are, are you, if it's not in the record, and is it properly before? It, it
6: is not properly before the court, and I want to explain why it was not put in the record. If well,
0: but if it's not, if it isn't in the record, and it's not properly before the court, I should think that would be the end of it. it
6: Very well, Mr. Chief Justice. I I merely want to note its existence because I think if the court is not satisfied with the showing that was made on costs, I would like it to entertain the the request or the the question that uh, that Justice Stevens put uh, to uh, my colleague, and that is that a remand be permitted so that the record may be more fully uh, substantiated. I might add that Green Tree, during the course of this litigation, was uh, asked, was There was litigation over the issue of costs, both at the District Court and the Court of Appeals. Greentree was asked at oral argument, as its parent from the the opinion from the 11th Circuit, about the costs. And it was unprepared to say that there were specific costs, or, as Mr. Phillips has now allowed, that they might very well allow costs at the the
0: outset. the, The Court of Appeals, as I understand its opinion, didn't talk about actual costs, it simply said that because these might, these things might happen. Well, Mr. Chief Justice, I think... Um, you know, it put the burden basically on the party seeking arbitration rather than on the party challenging the arbitration. I, I, I question the propriety of that.
6: I understand, Mr. Chief Justice. I refer now to the section of the opinion that's found at Appendix 17A and B, uh, I'm sorry, 17A and 18A. Where the Eleventh Circuit refers to some questions and answers given to it by, uh, by GreenTree's counsel at argument, and um, they ask about whether AAA rules are normally used, and they say we don't typically do that. Uh, then it says the, the opinion on top of page 18A says GreenTree also asserted at oral argument that the arbitrator may apportion the fees of the arbitration in his award. But that provides no guarantee that a consumer successfully arbitrating under this clause will not be saddled with a prohibitive cost order. And it goes on. They were asked and given an opportunity, apparently, to indicate what
0: are the costs. But why should the burden be on them?
6: Well, I think that the there, there, there wasn't... I mean, they,
0: they weren't challenging the arbitration agreement. Your client was. I
6: understand, but I think that's part of the record that we have here as to what those... The, there was an, a consistent difficulty in pinning down Greentree as to what the costs were. Why doesn't Alabama
4: law cover that? I, I mean, maybe it... I, I found that my law clerk found a case here involving Greentree where the Alabama Supreme Court says, where a clause in a contract is silent on a particular question notions of fairness and settled principles of Alabama law prevent us from deciding the question by indulging an assumption that the proof would support a worst-case scenario. And so, rather, you, you I understand. Them and, so why, following just Alabama law, wouldn't you say, well, what we're going to do is uh, assume that it will be interpreted in a reasonable
6: way that would support the arbitration? Because, because Justice Breyer, that would put Ms., have put Ms. Randolph in the untenable position where in, in the pursuit of a claim that had economic damages of about $15, she would be forced to go forward with an arbitration on the presumption that the fees and, a, and costs would ultimately be allocable in a fair way without knowing what that would be
0: I don't, I don't and challenge that, them later. I don't think that's necessarily correct, Mr. Sellers. Conceivably, some, you know, proof could be offered in in the district court before the arbitration that the fee, fee, fees would be, you know, way, way out of proportion. But it just wasn't done here.
6: Well, Mr. Chief Justice, what they did offer was that information that was taken from the AAA survey. There was information in the record. It is true that it was not taken from this case, and I have explained the reason for that. But that is evidence in the record before the district court as to the average cost of arbitration and filing fees. If that's either fair or not.
4: You said it will make her go forward on an assumption the costs would be allocated in a fair way. Well, what's wrong with going forward on an assumption that they'll be allocated in a fair way? How could anybody object to that?
6: Because, because Justice Breyer, nobody knows what that means, and it would cause her to go forward. I'm sorry, if I could just finish. It would cause her to go forward in pursuit of a claim of very limited economic uh, value on the possibility at the end, so let's suppose that the fair way in the mind of the arbitrator was to split the costs, regardless of outcome. Each side bears its own, uh, bears half the cost of the arbitration. And if the arbitration was $5,000 and her share was 2500 she might very well not go forward under those then circumstances. And that wouldn't be very fair, would it? No, I don't think it would be. But that might be in the eye of the arbitrator, the, the result that is awarded. And we won't know that unless it's determined or ascertainable at the beginning. We don't take the position that the costs have to be set forth specifically in the arbitration agreement, but that they be ascertainable. And, in fact, the American Arbitration Association last year adopted new rules pursuant to a consumer protocol which set forth the the provision that a maximum of $125 must be borne by the consumer, and the rest would be borne by Uh, the company for smaller claims. That is a, had this agreement simply said we will follow that kind of rule or refer to an outside source of that kind of rule, that would have been fine. But complete silence, it was even silent as to whether there were costs. There was not even indication that somebody who went forward with arbitration would have to bear costs. She'd have to be informed, have to know that and have confidence that in going forward, there would be a reasonable be an expectation of an allocation that is fair, whatever that means. We submit that that kind of uncertainty creates a disincentive to go forward and enforce the rights under the Truth in Lending Act that this Court in Mitsubishi and in Gilmer made clear is a basis either to decline to enforce the agreement altogether or, as was asked about the coal decision, if I may address it for a moment, We we understand there's a split in the circuits as to whether under Section 4 of the Federal Arbitration Act there is any uh, authority that the district courts have to insert provisions into an agreement to have it conform with the law as they view it. Um, Whether or not that authority exists, ultimately, the, the outcome ought to be that the district courts should tell the parties, I won't permit this to go forward unless you spell out costs or give the party against whom the arbitration agreement is being enforced the opportunity to be assured that they're not going to bear costs uh, beyond those that would be, uh, they would ordinarily expect if they went forward in court. That is the forum that they chose. If, the, if judicial and arbitral forums are to be comparable, you can't impose on one party costs well in excess or create the risk that they would bear those costs Why well in Why can't she
5: just ask the arbitrator to make that decision at the outset?
6: I'm sorry, Justice. Why committee?
5: can't the claimant simply ask the arbitrator uh, to please make the determination at the outset as to what the fees are going to be. You'd have a filing fee, and you say for your first hour, for the first half a day. Tell me what's involved. I might want to get out of here. And, and,
6: and of course, if the if the plaintiff did that, she, Ms. Randolph, would have already incurred costs going forward.
5: I know, that even if, if she I, later I, went a to filing back. Filing fee an initial
6: fee. Well, and maybe the the cost, yeah, part of the cost of the arbitrator. And again, I must add, the arbitrator said, as again, people who are busy and expected to arbitrate cases are often called upon to do, I'm going to have to bill you for a day because I've set aside all my other work in order to attend to this arbitration. So if you take 10 minutes or 10 hours, that's the time I'm charging you for. That is a cost that, uh, that is a risk that a prudent person I don't think ought to be expected to. Well,
5: if the parties agree see. on arbitration and the arbitrator has to be fair, not only in the decision but in the allocation of costs and expenses, it seems to me that that's for the arbitration.
6: Well, again, I, I, we submit that we understand that, that that determination may and properly should ultimately be made by an arbitration, but costs are really unique. Could, could you in do a, this
4: in respect to costs? Uh, I'm I sorry. This, uh, could you do the following? I'm not sure you can But I see that uh, Alabama says custom or usage is used to interpret the silent contract. And there are associations like the American Arbitration Association that have gone to enormous trouble to figure out how to structure costs and procedures so as to be fair to consumers or others who don't have the money uh, and they might be frightened of Mm -hmm. the cause. Well, could you read that customs or usage in Alabama as embodying some such system or the like, not necessarily the arbitration one, but some such system that would avoid the problem of later unconscionability and would therefore uh, make the thing uh, valid and uh, both valid and fair.
6: Justice Breyer, I certainly think you could do that. But I think the the key to it is that it be established at the outset and not at the end of the arbitration. I mean,
4: couldn't the court in this instance have said, look, we have a silent contract here, Alabama tells us to use customer usage. By that, they mean customer usage that will make the provision valid if it exists. And here is a body that does that. And so we assume something like that will be. Uh, uh,
6: Yes, I think the district court had that authority and could and could and should have exercised some additional authority in telling the parties at that juncture, before it sent them off to arbitration, I am concerned about the silence on costs. I believe I, I want to give effect to this agreement. I believe that's the intention of the parties. But I am also concerned about the potential imposition of uh, excessive costs. In Alabama, there's a customer usage provision, and I want to establish before I send this off to arbitration or have an initial conference with the arbitrator to determine at no expense to the parties what cost is going to be assessed and how is it going to be allocated. And And at that point... Go forward and, and arbitrate. That would satisfy us. But it's got to be done at the outset, not at the end, because at that point, you bear the costs, you're stuck with them, or, as in the case of Ms. Randolph, you're so deterred by the possibility of excessive costs that you won't go forward. And that's the prospective waiver of the TILA claims that this Court has expressed concern if, if it were to arise. So we don't want that to happen either.
2: Mr. Sellers, that if the the Eleventh Circuit had taken the D C circuit route that is not tossed out this arbitration, which would allow your client as I understand the posture now, your client can go into to court with a Truth in Lending Act suit and is freed from the yoke of arbitration. Is that correct?
6: I'm sorry, I misunderstood I didn't As understand I understand
2: the eleventh circuit decision. Oh yes. This contract is no good. Right. Therefore your client can go to court Correct. And bring a truth in lending act action, class it's action in the works. Correct. You have indicated that you would have found acceptable the D.C. Circuit solution, which is the arbitration agreement is preserved. We just read in the provision that we think is necessary to make it enforceable.
6: That, that's either, either, Justice Ginsburg, either the D.C. Circuit and Cole's approach is acceptable or the approach I was suggesting to uh, Justice Breyer, which is that the court convene the parties, say to them, you have to pencil in this cost rather than the, than the court doing it. And because I'm not, I, I want to enforce this agreement, and I understand you both agreed to it, but we need to spell out these costs. So it's either the district court does it as the Cole court endorsed in the, at the outset, or instead... The parties are directed to do it, but it's always at the outset before they're compelled to go to arbit- before they go to arbitration.
0: Now, did you did you argue that to the Eleventh Circuit? The the specific, uh, yes. of course. The the yes, not, you can answer yes or no, can't you?
6: Uh, no, not in those words, but yes, insofar as we are. Forgive me for yes. I, I feel the need to explain That's my okay. answer. Um, yes, insofar as we argue to the Eleventh Circuit. That there wa- they had an option that was other than simply to invalidate the agreement in its entire. That the cost had to be established up front.
0: And no. Uh...
6: No, I didn't. I didn't present the options in the way I've just presented uh, to the court today. Uh, but I think that uh, it's reasonable to infer that the, you know, the district court regarded itself as lacking authority to pencil in anything as the coal court allowed in the D.C. Circuit. That's clear. And it is also clear that there was issue about the cost presented to the district court and about there being excessive. Um, And the record was developed whether it was sufficient on the cost in that case or not to satisfy the court. Uh, I think we we may have a a difference of of opinion, but I think it's fair to say that the issue of cost was raised early and it was raised several times. It was not a last-minute concern, and it was raised to the Court of Appeals in the same fashion. And if I might add, if I could turn for just a moment to the class action issue, which I understand was not decided by the by the Court of Appeals because it, I apparently didn't feel it needed to reach the issue, but I think at least I want to make clear that much the same kind of approach uh, we've, we've advanced here could be taken with respect to the class action issue. Ms. Randolph has, has taken the position here that... Not that class actions under Truth and Lending Act are always exempt from arbitration. Anytime a lawyer styles a case as a class action, it's exempt from arbitration. That is not the position that we've taken here. The position is, likewise, the agreement was silent on class actions. The district court viewed it as uh, silence meant it's excluded. Um, That's the end of the discussion. Even though the district court expressed some sympathy for Ms. Randolph's concerns about aggregating small consumer claims, In the absence of that, the parties being uh, left with no recourse. And I, I submit that, once again, the district court could have and should have been able to say to the parties, I see also that Ms. Randolph has styled this case as a class action. I believe that the Truth in Lending Act, while the language of the statute itself contemplates class actions, but more importantly, Congress made it clear, echoing the views of the Federal Reserve Board, that there was great importance attached to the the enforcement of the statute through class actions. And the district judge could have said and should have said, I think that you, you, I don't know whether you intend to include class actions here, although Greentree had already made its position clear by opposing class certification, that it presumably didn't want it uh, and may very well have hoped that it would never, never see another class action again in these kinds of boilerplate agreements but that I'm going to send this to arbitration, but I want you to understand that I regard, the district court says this, I regard class action to be an option, either left to the arbitrator to determine whether to certify the class or for the district court itself to determine whether to certify a class, and then upon review at the end to satisfy itself that the interests of absent class members have been adequately protected. I think the district court viewed its role in in a, a way that was much too passive for the, the circumstances of the Federal Arbitration Act. But we do not take the position, and I want to be very clear about it, that we, we do not take the position that all TILA claims should be exempt from arbitration, or even all TILA class actions should be exempt from arbitration, nor that the district court was let without recourse to have the parties put in place some assurances about cost or to actually insert a provision about cost, as the Cole Court seems to contemplate. Well,
2: why should this, the district court do that? I mean, if you're right, why not say we construe the contract against the drafter? The drafter didn't put it in, so the contract is no good.
6: Well, certainly, Master Barono allows for that possibility. This court's decision, Master Barono, we 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 also recognize, however, that there's a strong policy favoring the enforcement of of appropriate arbitration agreements, and all we are saying here is that. Either there there has to be, as the Eleventh Circuit did, a conclusion that the agreement is not enforceable, or the district courts could have some discretion to ensure that the parties put in place at the outset, not at the end of the arbitration process, but at the outset, mechanisms to ensure that these kinds of protections are ensured. The
4: class action issue seems harder to get a hold of to me at the moment because it seems like a pure state law issue. They're interpreting the contract, and they simply interpret the contract perhaps wrongly. Uh, so that the class action in this case, in this contract, is not excluded from the arbitration. The other questions, of course, are also state law questions, but, but they basically are questions of state law that are made federal because of the policy of the Arbitration Act, uh, contrary to hostility
6: by the state law. J- Justice Breyer, it, it would be, might be state law, but the district court treated, interpreted the question in the context of Section 4 of the Federal Arbitration Act.
4: The, the uh, class action.
6: Class action issue. It never got to the question of whether Maybe. class certification was warranted under state law. No. It stopped at the issue of it's silent, therefore I have no discretion to consider it, and then expressed some sympathy for the plaintiff's view that uh, class action might be appropriate here, but I have no authority to interpret this, silent, this agreement that was silent on this as permitting class actions. That, I think, is... A, a, ro- a view of its role, the district court's role, that it's too passive given this statute. Unless there are any further questions,
0: I'll... Thank you, Mr. Sellers. Uh, Mr. Phillips, you have four minutes remaining.
1: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, unless you have further questions
0: on the jurisdictional issue, I'm going
1: to focus on the question of enforceability. And it's only at the very tail end of Mr. Sellers' remarks that he identifies the fact that there is a national policy favoring arbitration. And, and I don't think we should lose sight of the fact that in this context there was a voluntarily entered into arbitration clause that ought to be enforced under these circumstances. And there are no guarantees when you go down arbitration as opposed to litigation. Uh, We are in a situation now where we have litigated this issue in three different jurisdictions at levels of this court. I don't think anybody going in anticipated any of those costs, and certainly no one is in a position to give a guarantee that that any process of dispute resolution is going to be cost-free or have cost constraints. And indeed... The plaintiff never asked the District Court for any of the specifics that the counsel has identified in the context of this particular case. What she said is, plaintiff does not have the resources to arbitrate, notwithstanding her agreement. Therefore, plaintiff's only option is to forego any claims against this company. That is the sum and substance of her position with respect to cost, not some kind of more restrained action. And that's why the District Court rejected the, what about notion the, notion the notion that those that costs were unconscionable. We wanted unconscious. to
2: have this discovery into what the arbitration proceeding would be, and why couldn't one assume that that discovery would inevitably involve issues about the cost of arbitration.
1: There's no problem with seeking discovery. The
2: question is, did she... I thought that she was told she couldn't have discovery in the district court. It's
1: not in the record in this case. She sought some discovery. She didn't seek additional discovery. Those are reasonable choices litigants make every day. And the point is, it's certainly not appropriate for this court in a case in which the 11th Circuit quite clearly handled all of this as a matter of law. The Chief Justice is absolutely right. You read 17A and 18A, and it says, presume everything adverse. to the the lender in this case, and only then can you come to the conclusion that this arbitration clause should be enforced. That's clearly wrong as an approach to this particular case, and that's the judgment that ought to be reversed. The rest of these issues I think legitimately ought to be considered somewhere down the line. But call and reasonableness and unconscionability are questions that need to be resolved. In a, in, a, in a framework that is fundamentally different from a litigant who throws up her hands and says, I'm not going to participate in this particular
3: process.
2: But, but you are asking us to reject the D.C. Circuit solution. That is, in contrast to the 11th Circuit that said, no arbitration, you can have your suit in court. The D.C. Circuit said, you must go to arbitration, but we're going to relieve the... the um, <coughs> party who resisting arbitration relieve her of the anxiety of thinking she's going to have to pay costs by telling her that's a term of law that we, not, not asking the district court to do it, Court of Appeals saying, we write that into the contract. What, what is, it? you said it was premature. Is it wrong?
1: it may be wrong if we have the right facts. I I think it is a mistake to say categorically that the lender will always pay the fees regardless of the circumstances in a particular case. Now, you know, if the case came up in the right context, I could well imagine the court might adopt a view like that. I could also imagine it might adopt the dissenting opinion in Cole and say, no, it still requires more of a case-by-case analysis in order to properly balance the interests of both sides. But the clear thing you shouldn't do is reject sending this case to arbitration on a record where the plaintiff had a full and fair opportunity and chose simply to say she's not going to play in that particular ballpark. With no other questions, thank you, Your Honors.
0: Thank you, Mr. Phillips. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.